0: All righty, if you have your Bibles and you'd like to follow along. Uh, we've got, once again, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 3 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 9. And the title of our lesson is Rejoicing in Grief. Uh, rejoicing in, in Grief. Now, as many of you know, we just came through a study of Job. Um, in, uh, earlier in 2019. And so we've talked a lot over the last several months in here about suffering. And um, on this subject, the Bible is, is very clear. Christians should expect to suffer. And I'll give you some scriptures on that. But Christians should expect to suffer. However, I find there's a lot of confusion in the world about how we're supposed to deal with suffering. In other words, when you you have to go through something, what type of attitude should you have? And and this kind of runs all across the board. For example, some would say, well, you're suffering because you lack faith. You're supposed to claim healing. You're supposed to to think positive. You're supposed to deny any negative thoughts and, and just... This ain't supposed to be happening to me. By the way, completely unbiblical. That's not in the Bible anywhere, but yet that teaching continues to persist uh, throughout the Christian world. Others may say, well, yeah, we're supposed to go through suffering, but you're supposed to go through it with a smile on your face. In other words, they'll, they'll quote scriptures, rejoice in the Lord always, in every give, everything give thanks. Uh, uh, all things work together for good. And all those are are true scriptures, but they'll they'll just tell you, you're just supposed to go through it with a smile on your face. On the other hand, people will react kind of against that belief. They'll go the other way and they say, well, you just need to express how you feel. And I've even, I've, I've had people tell me this. You just, if you're angry at God, just tell God you're angry at Him. Just rail against God. Just get it, whatever's on your chest, just get it off. If you've got negative feelings or you're angry or whatever, just, just get it off your, off your chest. Now, I would argue that none of those are biblically or emotionally healthy ways to deal with uh, suffering. So, what type of attitude should we have when we go through, through suffering? How, how do we deal with it? And here's, here's a big question. Can we keep our joy while we suffer? Now, our passage this morning is going to answer some of those questions for us. And we're going to learn several things about suffering and about how we are to deal with, 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 with suffering. So let's begin to read in 1 Peter 1. We're going to read verses 3 through 5. I want to remind you, you've got a salvation that's being kept in heaven for you. It's being guarded. It's being, it's being kept there for you. At the same time, God is guarding you through faith to make sure that you get that inheritance, that you get that sal- salvation. So this is just wonderful news, right, for, for us as Christians. And then, after saying that, just that great thing that he just said, he says this, Verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, from those two verses we can learn several things uh, about suffering but i i want you to understand something what peter is concerned with is that we have a proper perspective on suffering he's going to tell us several things about suffering but what he's trying to build in us is a proper christian perspective on suffering so these are we're going to, we're going to create a little list what would be a a good christian perspective on Suffering. What what can we learn from these verses? Number one is this our suffering is only for a little while. It's what Peter said right there in verse six. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for just a little while you've been grieved by various trials. See, he wants us to remind us that first and foremost, no matter what type of suffering you're going through, it's temporary. It's not gonna last forever. It's only for a little while. Now, I know what a lot of people immediately would think in their mind. Well, yeah, Derek, but I've been going through this for months. Or I've been going through this for, for years. Well, let me tell you, it's still only a little while in light of eternity. It's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians four seventeen through 18. Listen to what he said. For this light momentary affliction, light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, and Paul says they're not even worth comparing. It's not even worth comparing. Whatever you go through in this life, when you get to the other side, when you see Jesus, you'll look back and say, that ain't even worth talking about. It was nothing compared to what... And that's what it's, it's beyond comparison. It's not even worth comparing. This, this is temporary. It's only for a, a little while. Trials are temporary. Suffering is temporary. Salvation... ...is eternal. The fact is, in a short while... ...we're going to see Jesus Christ... ...and we're going to spend eternity with Him. We, we have to remember that. So when we're going through various trials... ...different things... ...and you'll see as you read through 1 Peter... ...these can be health trials... ...they can be marriage trials... ...they can be work-related trials... ...all kinds of various trials. Peter will address each one of them in this book. And he said they're all just for a little while... That's number one. Keep that in in perspective. Our present trials, no matter how great, are going to pale, pale in comparison with the light of eternity. So when we suffer, focus on the shortness of it. This isn't forever. It's only temporary. So that's the first line item we would have on a Christian perspective on suffering is it's temporary. What's the second one? Our suffering is necessary. Our suffering is necessary. Look at what Peter says in verse 6. By the way, this this is the biggest one. This is huge. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, read that with me, if necessary. If it's necessary, right now you've been grieved. So anything he says you're going through, it's necessary. See, as Christians, as I said in the first part of the lesson, it's, it's incredibly clear in the Bible that we are going to suffer. We, In fact, we should expect to suffer. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. First Peter 2.21, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. Acts fourteen twenty one to 22 And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You don't get through this life without suffering. There's not a, some kind of force field around you that God says, Don't know. No, the Bible is clear over and over. We will, Jesus said, in this life, you will have tribulations. You will have trouble. It's going to come. We should expect that. But don't you think human nature, I know when it happens to me, my first question is, why is this happening to me? Everybody wants to know why. What's the point of this? What's the purpose of this? If I could just know the purpose of it, Maybe I could deal with it a little bit better. Everybody wants to know. Well, Peter gives us a reason in these verses. Now, it's not the specific reason. He doesn't say, okay, uh, you know, Priscilla, in this specific thing, this is why I'm doing this for you. But he gives us an overarching reason, and that is that it is necessary. Your suffering is not random. It's not coincidence. It's not just part of life. He says it is necessary, and it is absolutely essential that, that we grasp this. Let's say, for example, I was driving over to a friend's house, and and on the way over, I got in a wreck, and this wreck caused me some permanent damage in my back or in my hip or whatever the case. And I'm in the hospital, and the doctors just said, man, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna suffer with this the rest of your life. And then I, later on that day, a friend visits and said, man, you know, this it's 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 so odd this happened that that Bible study that you were going to was canceled and you didn't get the word you you shouldn't even have been on that street you shouldn't even have been on that on that road and and it's easy for us to say well my this is completely unnecessary right and circumstantially it would look unnecessary but listen Peter says no no your suffering is necessary God's plan includes no accidents it includes no mistakes in his sovereign will it was purposed, and therefore a necessity later on by the way in first Peter chapter 4 he will say this let therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good it is necessary okay so that's the second thing number one it's temporary number two it's necessary now everybody here should be asking the question necessary for what What's it necessary for? What's it required for? Well, that's the third thing. Our suffering is necessary to prove our faith is genuine. Our suffering is necessary to prove our faith is genuine. Look again at verse 7. I'll read the whole thing. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that for the purpose of testing the genuineness of your faith. Is your faith real? Peter says God will take you through testing. He'll take you through trials to prove whether or not your your faith is real. By the way, let's be really clear. Before we talk about real faith, genuine faith, does everybody here understand that there is such a thing as false faith? There is such a, a thing as faith that is not real and not genuine. Jesus talks about this in the parable of the sowers in Mark chapter 4. He says this, The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown. So he says, like today, this morning, we'll all meet in here, and Pastor Henry, I assume, will get up and, and preach, and he'll sow the word. And that word will go across the, con- all across the congregation. There will be some people here, and it'll go in one ear and right out the other. It makes no, it makes no impact on them at all. As soon as the word is, uh, is on them, in their ears, uh, you know, Jesus said Satan comes and steals it away. They can leave here and go down the road, and you can say, hey, what did Henry preach on? They got no clue. They got no clue. It makes no impact on them. That's, that's no faith, by the way. And then Jesus says this. There are the ones sown on rocky ground. And these are ones who, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. But they have no root in themselves, and they endure only for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. That's false faith. That's not real faith. They have no root in themselves. They, they hear the word and they think, boy, this is the answer I've been, I've been looking for. God's going to solve all my problems. But it's not real. They're looking for a quick fix. They're not looking for a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is false faith. Um, He goes on, number three. And the others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches and desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. In other words, it never brings forth any fruit in their in their in their life. Once again, that is a false faith. It's not true. It's not real. It's not not genuine. They they hear it and they start trying to walk in it. But the world and work and marriage and all these other things and all it just it just chokes it out and they end up uh, proving unfaithful. But he says there are some that is called he calls it good ground. They are the ones who hear the word and they accept it and they bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. That is real faith. That is genuine faith. Now, by the way, it goes unsaid. Do you understand that genuine faith also has to deal with tribulations? Do you understand that real faith also has to deal with the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches? Real faith has to deal with all those things too, but it doesn't get sidetracked. It starts bringing forth fruit. That's real faith, and that's what Jesus is talking about. See, false faith, in all the times that you see it, will always grow weaker. Anytime you you put it out there in the world, anytime you put it out there amongst testing and temptation, false faith will grow weaker weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker, and eventually you don't see them anymore. Genuine faith grows stronger. That's what Peter says. He's testing you, so that your faith will prove genuine. And he uses gold as an analogy. And I'm not—I'm not uh, not a a metallurgist or whatever you call those things. But they—they take gold and they put it through a refining process, and it gets rid of all the impurities. And they got different—they got 24 karat gold and 12 karat gold, and and. And if you go look at the chart, it's all about how much impurities. 24 karat gold is pure gold. There's no impurities in it uh, whatsoever. That's what Peter says he's doing to us. He's taking us through testing. He's taking us through suffering to get rid of all the impurities, to get rid of all the stuff that didn't need to be around. And he's proving that our faith is real. By the way, this is the great comfort of the believer To prove your faith is real. Do you understand you don't have to prove it to God? He already knows. You're proving it to yourself. That's who it's being proved to. Not to God. God already knows whether your faith is real or not. You know He knows it all. Who it's proving it to is you. It's proving it to yourself. When you come through that trial and you're stronger and your faith is stronger and you go to the next trial and your faith is... Man, the assurance inside of you just grows and grows and grows and grows. You don't have to doubt whether I'm saved. I don't have to doubt whether I'm going to heaven. I'm a believer. And I've been through these trials, and I've proved the genuineness of our faith. So that's the third thing. Number one, it's temporary. Number two, it's necessary. Number three, it's proving my faith is real. Number four, our suffering will be rewarded. Verse 7 So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now listen, we all know that when Jesus returns, he's going to get the praise, he's going to get the glory, and he's going to get the honor. He's worthy of it all. Yet almost every commentator, you because you, this is tricky here. Go back and look at that. Who's he, who's he talking about getting praise? Who's he talking about getting glory? Who's he talking about getting honor? He doesn't say, does he? He just says, so that your faith will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Almost all the commentators that I read agree that he's talking about us. You see, the fact is, the New Testament is clear that one day you will receive praise and glory and honor from God himself. For example, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, then each one will receive his commendation or his praise from God. Jesus talked about in the New Testament, he said something about the Pharisees, they love the praise of men more than what? Than the praise of God. Romans 2.10 says this, But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. He's talking about believers will receive glory and honor and praise. So there's a sense that we all know we're going to receive a crown. There's a sense that we're going to receive these things, and I can tell you what we're going to do. We're going to turn it right around and give them back to him. We're going to turn right around and say, No, you, you deserve the honor. You deserve the glory. You deserve the praise. So that's a Christian perspective on suffering. Four things. Number one, it's temporary. Number two, it's necessary. Number three, it's proving my faith is real. Number four, it will be rewarded. Number five, you can have joy and grief simultaneously. You can experience joy and grief in your life at the exact same time. Let's go back and look at this scripture. Verse six. In this, you rejoice though now you have been grieved. You see, the two things he's talking about here, rejoicing and grief, they're happening at the same time. See, he says, in this you rejoice. Everybody see that? What's he talking about? Well, go back to the first three verses, three through five. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter says, in that, in this, the fact that your inheritance is waiting on you, the fact that you are being guarded to make sure that you get there, in that you rejoice, although right now, For just a little while, you're going through grief. See, they're happening at the same time. See, they're, they're emotions that exist at the same time. You're rejoicing in your salvation. You're rejoicing in your eternal destiny. But you're grieving because of what you're going through right now. But these things can exist simultaneously at the exact same time. And by the way, that's not only okay, it's right. It's right. You don't have to pretend you're not hurting. You don't have to pretend you're not grieving. Go back and look at what he, what he said. It's okay to be grieved. He said he doesn't, he doesn't rebuke them for that. But he says rejoice in your eternal destiny. Rejoice in the fact that you're saved. Rejoice in the fact that you're being guarded by God. Rejoice in those things. But it is perfectly okay that when you go through trials, it, it's okay to be grieved. That's, that's perfectly natural. So a a correct perspective on suffering allows us to grieve in the suffering, but also we should have joy because we know it's only temporary, and we've got something better waiting on us. So those are the five things that these verses give us uh, as a Christian perspective on suffering. Number one, it's temporary. Number two, it's necessary. Number three, it's proving my faith is real. Number four, it will be rewarded. And number five, we can rejoice and grieve at the same time. Now, let's get real practical here. How do I rejoice when my grief is so strong? How how do I rejoice when my grief is so strong? By the way, does everybody notice the question? You don't have to ask, how do we grieve when our joy is full? You don't have to ask that, do you? Because grieving is just natural. Grieving is going to, distress is another word that you'll see used in a translation. That's just natural. You don't have to, you don't have to work that up. You don't have to think that through. You, you experience loss, you're going to grieve. That is a perfectly human, natural reaction. So you don't have to say, how do I grieve when I've got all this joy? No, the, the question is the other way around. The question is, how do I have joy? How do I experience rejoicing when my grief is so strong? Peter gives us two answers in today's lesson. The first one, we've already kind of talked about that. And he said this, focus on your inheritance. Focus on your inheritance. This is what he said right there in verse 6. In this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. What? The fact that I've been made alive by God in Christ. The fact that I've got a, a, an eternal salvation waiting on me. The fact that that salvation is being kept by God. And I'm being guarded through faith by God. Focus on that, he says. Remember that. Those are the things there that he's telling us to look to the eternal things, not the temporary things. You see, this is how we make joy a reality in our lives even when we're going through suffering even when we're going through grieving listen we've all i know i have i'm assuming we've all gone through some type of suffering and it doesn't have to be health wise it doesn't it can be health it can be the loss of a loved one it can be a uh problems at work it can be a marriage that's falling apart it can be financial problems you all how, how easy is it when you're going through problems to get consumed with the problem isn't that natural? You just That's all you think about. You get in the car, you get up in the morning, and you're thinking about your problems. You're driving to work, you're thinking about your problems. You get to work, you're thinking about the problems. You lay down at night, you're thinking about the problems. It's just problems, problems. Where, where Paul says, um, Peter says, stop, think about that. Stop thinking about this and think about that. Think about what's been done for you. Think about your salvation and your inheritance, and that this is just for a little while. And he's taking you through these things to prove that that your salvation is real. Think on those things. Focus on your inheritance. Focus on the eternal, not the temporary. This is the exact same thing, by the way, that Paul says in Colossians 3, 1 through 2. He says this, If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things below. Set. Choose what you think about. Choose what you focus on. Trust me, if you focus on the problem and you just focus on that, listen, the grief and the distress and all that will overwhelm you. Peter says, focus on the eternal and you can rejoice even while you're grieving. By the way, this is true for all aspects of our life. Th- this is a scripture I found out of Hebrews chapter 10, and he's writing to some people, and he says this, "...for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one." So here's a situation where there's some people in prison, and if you go visit them, if you take them anything in prison the authorities are going to come to your house and plunder your property. So what do you do? Do you hide out? These, these people didn't. They went and had compassion on those in prison. The authorities went to their house, plundered their property, and he said, you joyfully accepted it. Why? Because you knew you had an inheritance. See, it's not just about your trial sometimes. Sometimes it's just about life. Knowing you've got that inheritance allows you to joyfully... In this case, they, they joyfully had their property plundered. Because they knew what? Man, I got, I got, I got mansions. I got things waiting for me that are, that are unspeakable. See, they just knew this was temporary. So this kind of attitude, focusing on the eternal, can affect all of our life. Number two, if you want joy and suffering, number one, focus on your inheritance... Number two, focus on your relationship with Jesus. Look at verses 8 through 9. Peter says this, and I love these verses. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him or trust in Him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Did you know Peter... Him. Peter sat beside Jesus. He listened to Jesus. He saw Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He saw the nail scars in his hand. He had a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. But Peter is writing to people who never saw him. They never walked with him. They never talked with him they never met him. They'd never touched his hand. They'd never sat beside him and shared a meal with him. they have never seen him. And Peter is writing to these people, by the way, same as us. He's writing and saying, though you don't, you've never met him, you love him and you trust him. By the way, that is the essence of real, true, genuine faith that you love and trust Jesus Christ. That is the essence of real... See, it's more than just having an inheritance. It's more than just getting through this life. I have a relationship with the Son of God. Me. I, have, I, I love Him. I trust Him. I've staked everything on Him. See, that's, that's the very essence of, uh, uh, of true salvation. It's not that I was just walked down an aisle 40 years ago or, or, or prayed a prayer or I come to church every Sunday. No, it's having a relationship with Jesus Christ and loving and trusting him. That is the essence of genuine faith. W- listen, what a privilege. Just think about that. I know Jesus Christ. I know Jesus Christ. Jesus said one day people are going to come before him at the judgment and they're going to say lord didn't we do all these mighty works and what's he going to say i never knew you we never had a relationship with one another never listen i know jesus christ when i'm going through suffering peter says remember that remember that you you actually love and trust jesus christ and he loves you back you have a relationship with the son of god Focus on that, and you'll find joy even in the midst of grief. Now, a few final thoughts here um, as we we close. I want to talk for a minute. This came up in my study this week, and I'm not going to go and make a whole lesson out of it, but I just wanted to bring something up. And I want to talk a little bit about the creative power of the Word of God. Um, All my life, I've heard... uh, that the Bible is a manual for life. How many of y'all have ever heard that? Our Bible's a manual for life. The B-I-B-L-E, Basics Instructions Before Leaving Earth, is what it stands for. So it's a, it's a manual. Have y'all all heard that? It's a manual, it's a manual, it's a manual. And, and the concept here is that we are the creations of God, and God has given us a manual to live our life by. And if we learn those principles and we apply those principles then, of course, everything will go well. Now, by the way, that is true, okay? Uh, 1 Timothy 3, 16-17 says this, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped. Those are all things Emmanuel's use used for, right? To, to train, to, 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 to straighten people out, to correct them, In other words, the Bible is a manual for life. I have no problem with that whatsoever. The problem is that many people stop right there. And they only see the Bible as this kind of repository of of principles for life. That's all they see it as. Okay? Now, here's the problem with that. A manual is a perfect solution when all I need is something to tell me what to do with what I already have, right? It's kind of like uh, you, ever, you, ever, you, know, you buy something for Christmas, right? You sit out on the floor and you take the manual. And you got this many screws and this many bolts and this many of this, and, and it tells you how to take all that and put them together. But let me tell you, the manual's not any good if you're missing four screws, right? The manual just tells you what to do with what you already have. Can I tell, stand here before you and tell you I need more than a manual? I need more than a manual. In fact, I need a lot more than that. I need power. I need courage. I need discipline. I need kindness. I need right motives. I need strength. I need I could just go on and on and on and on and on. I need a lot of things in my life. You see, a manual can't give me what I don't have. It can only tell me what to do with what I already have. I need the Bible to be more than just a manual. And thank God it is. In Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. In Psalms 33-6, it says this, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. You see, when God speaks, His word has creative power. We all know that, right? When God speaks, His word has creative power. See, the thing I want us to see this morning is God's word... Thank God it's a manual. Thank God it's got principles to live by. But it's also more than that. This this word is creative. This is the God-breathed word of God. Which means there may be things in in my life that I don't have and I need, and this word can create it in me. Romans 4-7 says this, God gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Ephesians 4.12 says this. Listen to this. By the way, 2 Timothy is exactly right. But listen to this description of the Word of God. The Word of God is alive. It is active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. This is more than a manual. Everybody with me? It is a manual. Thank God for that. But it's more than a manual. And see, I think a lot of believers forget that. And they look at it just as, Oh, i got to do this, i got to do that, I shouldn't do this, I should do that. And they forget that His Word is creative. That His Word is God-breathed. You see, as I read this Word, and I believe this Word, this Word has the power to change me. God's Word creates and changes. Stuff that I didn't have before begins to appear in me. Now, let me, why did you bring all this up? Well, here's why. Let's say you're going through a trial. And my guess is there's many people here going through something right now. Can be financial, it could be at work, it could be health, it could be loss of a loved one, it could be a marriage, it could be a I, I, we could just go on down the line. You need joy. How do you get it? You need joy. How do you get it? Let me tell you, we open the Word of God and we read. We open the Word of God and we read. And Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has made me alive, who is a, has an inheritance set aside for me and is guarding me by faith. You love Jesus. He loves you. He's going to reward you. We read these things and they're more See, this is a deal. Those things, we we believe them. They're more than just words on a page. They become truths that burn deep inside our heart. And all of a sudden, our our situations and our problems begin to diminish, and he begins to increase. He begins to increase. All those, man, look at what's going on. All of a sudden, you don't see the little picture. You see the big picture. The Word of God does that. It can create joy in our hearts. See, this is more... Years ago, uh, Norman Vincent Peale wrote a book. What was the name of it? Anybody? The Power of Positive Thinking. Let me tell you, this is way more than positive thinking. This is a God-breathed Word that can create joy in you. So when you are going through something, Listen, the last thing you should ever do is set this aside. The first thing you ought to do is pick it up. Pick this up and read who you really are. Pick this up and and understand the reasons why you're going through what you're going through. See the promises. Believe the promises. Let those truths burn deep inside of you and create joy inside your heart. Next week, we'll move on to verse 10. And the title of our lesson is, What's So Great About Salvation?